Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, good evening. My name is Trina Ramsey, and I am so pleased to welcome you to this month's edition of the Revolutionary Sisters of the Diaspora. And tonight we have a very important show. The title is No One Has Our Back, Criminalizing, no one's going to step on that, Victims of Domestic Violence. And and this is a show really about basically turning the tables on women who have been abused and all of a sudden they are the they are the bad guy. And so we're gonna dig into it. This is a part of the Power Network here on Blog Talk Radio and Power is an acronym that stands for Peace, One Love, Win Win, Empowerment and revolution. And here on the Power Network, we cover all types of topics regarding criminal criminal justice, democracy, civil disobedience, women's issues, and a variety of things. And this specific group is an incarnation of Solace Sisters, and I'm here to introduce the founder of Solace for Sisters, Angeline, who we are actually celebrating our 10-year anniversary. So over to you, Ange. Thank you so much, Trina. Uh, Good evening, everyone. And I'm really, really pleased to have our guests with us tonight. Uh, Just briefly, Solace is an organization, a small group of women who are primarily in criminal justice, but we've expanded and we are in a variety of different disciplines. We started 10 years ago in, I think, February, and so we are celebrating our 10th year this year, our 10th year. And uh, basically we are a group of women that just get together and support each other. We are primarily based in the Washington, D.C. metro area, but some of our members have moved to various areas of the country, and so our expanse is wide. And uh, we just have basically two rules. We do not talk work, and we do not demean black men in particular. Uh, The first, I think we've done pretty well (laughs) at adhering to, or no, we have not done a good job at adhering to the first, uh, not talking about work, because we're all very passionate and committed about our work. But the second, I think we've done an excellent job of not demeaning Uh, black men in particular. And so this issue, while um, some may say, well, here you are talking about, you know, victims of domestic violence, women as as victims of domestic violence, it is not in any way, shape, or form meant to demean anyone. It is meant to bring attention to the issue, call attention to the issue, and hopefully offer some solace and advice for women who are facing these various issues. And so with that, I'm going to introduce our two guests uh, and then turn it over to Q, who will lead this show this evening. So our first guest is Ms. Marissa Alexander, who is the founder of the Marissa Alexander Justice Project. And our second guest is Dr. Wandalyn Peters, who's a psychiatrist and doctor in Florida. So thank you both for joining us, and I will turn it over to Q. Good evening, everyone. This is Q, the lovable, huggable, angry black woman. The revolution may not be televised, but it definitely definitely will be live streamed. And I am so excited for us to have this conversation today because we have to be real. We have to be honest. And this world, in many ways, is hostile to women of color. And that manifests in so many different ways, but one of the ways that is almost on epidemic proportions is the rate of intimate violence and domestic violence against women. So I just want to give you some quick facts before we turn it over so that our speakers can share their stories. But just in case you didn't know, black women were four time, are four times more likely to be victims of domestic violence or intimate partner violence compared to their white women counterparts. 
They make up only 8% of the population that is black women, but we are 22% of the homicides that relate to domestic violence and intimate partner violence. Our Latino brother sisters, I'm sorry, our Latina sisters, one in three of them experience domestic violence. And between 30 and 37% of them will experience domestic or intimate partner violence within the last 12 months. And this is complicated because it's not just about the women and their experience, but the children who have to bear witness to this violence that's visited upon their sisters and their mothers and their aunts and their cousins. And how is it they learn how to navigate a world where they already see the vision of a woman being violated and dehumanized and abused, right? So we have these numbers. We have these facts. But we have to put stories to the facts. We have to share our stories. We have to say their names so that we could see them and honor them. Because as Lori Neal Hurston told us, if we are silent about our pain, they will kill us and say we enjoyed it. I want to say that for you one more time so that you can really let it sit with you. If you are silent about your pain, they will kill you and say you enjoyed it. And so first I'd like to turn to Marissa because your story is so powerful and so impactful, and you actually used your body as a way to break that silence about your pain. And then after that I would hope that Dr. Peters Wandelin will share some of the stories from her own experience of working with women who have been traumatized and victimized, okay? So first, Marissa, please share your story with our listeners so that they can know how they can, uh, so that they can see it and hear it, if you don't mind. Um, it, just as far as the actual um, how my story came about, or are we talking about the question you, you asked earlier? I just want to make sure yeah. I'm clear. Oh, yes. No, first tell a little bit about your story and how it came about, and then share how you used your own body as a way to break the silence of your pain. Okay. Well, I mean, essentially I was in a a, a, domestic... My tattoo, okay. Um, Thank you for having me. Uh, (laughs) Well, you know, essentially I was in a relationship, and I, you know, chose to, you know, defend myself that day. And as a result, I was charged and, um, and convicted um in 12 minutes in the trial and you know i that didn't sit with me well it never did but one of the things that you know people underestimate is the power of the pen so what i did after i lost trial um was i literally wrote a letter of all of what you know what had happened and what i felt had went wrong with the proceedings and um and i the letter got out and it got into the hands of the right people and so that's where the case became national because at that point CNN got involved. Um, fast forward to the place I am now. I did I did um, end up going to prison after I was convicted, but I um, was fortunate enough to have um, a group of ladies as well as um, that started Free Marissa Now, much like what they have for Free Brescia, um, mm-hmm. that organized a lot of the efforts to continue to keep me you know, in in the in relevant and make sure that my name didn't go unswept. And during this time, was a lot of other cases going on in Florida, so it it, it was a very hot topic. Um, um, I did get my case overturned to the appellate court, and I went back. And I, during that time, was a more difficult time for me because um, the, that particular prosecutor that was in office um, really had an agenda um, to make sure that you know, I, I guess. She proved her point. Um, so that was a difficult time for me during that time. It, essentially, I resolved the case with a plea, um, and I did, and I also had to do two, two years of house arrest. Um, prior to resolving the plea was a more difficult time because we were preparing to go to trial. Um, so going through all of that, the trial, and then being in, pretty much at that point living my life in a fishbowl because I did get out on bond and was, you know, waiting trial and preparing for trial, um, there wasn't a lot. wasn't a lot I could say. I couldn't go anywhere. I was on home um, home detention, and so I, um, I there were some days I couldn't even get out of the bed. So what I did um, to to, to kind of cope with what I was going through at that time was I you know put my pain on my arm, 
um, that was the best way for me to be able to relieve uh, what was going on with me, which as opposed to the alternative, which was actually um, in committing suicide, just completely being, I was, you know, over and done with it. Because by this time, we were talking about I was four years into this uh, this ordeal here. And so um, I put the, my pain on my arm. And so now, you know, I'm I'm fortunate that, you know, through prayer and just, you know, God keeping me, that I made it through. And, and so now this this sleeve that I have on my arm is a canvas of my survival and things that mean things to me, which is peacock feathers, um, which represents wisdom and, and, and different other things. Butterflies, obviously, is transformation um, and the phoenix, which is, you know, the resurrection that rose from the ashes. So um, I, that's also part of my nonprofit logo. So I tattooed that, um, that it's a sleeve of that on my arm. Thank you. That is so beautiful. Um, I really appreciate, and I'm sure our listeners appreciate your sharing that. Wanda, would you mind sharing a little bit some of the stories of your clients? Sure, but I I just wanted to kind of go back and say about Marissa's story for a little bit. I'm not sure if people, Marissa might be better able to do this, but I'm not sure if people are not familiar with your case, Marissa, if they understand exactly what happened when you say you defended yourself that particular day. Mm-hmm. And if you're comfortable well, talking about it. I'm comfortable with it. I mean, you know, I don't, I mean, I didn't, I was faced with a decision. I had just given birth to a nine, um, a premature daughter. And so at that point, it was nine days later, my, my husband um, attacked me in my home. Um, when I did try to, to, separated and locked myself in the bathroom. He broke that bathroom down. So, you know, I was under uh, already under assault, and yet, you know, I had no other choice but to try to leave. And when I was not able to, I retrieved my firearm, um, which is registered. Um, I was in my home. I also had a concealed weapons permit, um, and I also had a restraining order in place at the time for no violent contact. Um, so I, I discharged my weapon after he threatened me, um, he, it worked. He, you know, he he ran out, and um, you know, he 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 was the one that called the police. He, I didn't have a phone at the time because he took mine. Um, but that's essentially what you know what happened that day. High level, anyway. Important for people to realize that you ended up uh, imprisoned without actually hurting anybody or making an attempt to anybody. You essentially fired a warning shot saying, "Get out of here," um, and still, with nobody being hurt, uh, were was imprisoned for that. So. I thought that was right, and, and the warning shot was, you know, not so much to say, hey, you know, it, it was if I'm I'm already under attack, okay, yeah. so that, that that's already done. There was no time for me to wait to see what else he was going to do. You know, once you threatened to kill me while I'm standing with my firearm, I could have killed you, but I did not. Okay, right. this was my husband. I did just have his child. You know, those dynamics are, you know, very, you know, di- difficult. Anyway, um, and so. Yes, I, I did. And, and Florida has strict um, gun laws here, and I was sentenced under the 1020 life uh, minimum mandatory um, sentencing. So for that, um, I was sent to prison for 20 years minimum mandatory, which is a day-for-day um, sentence because uh, I discharged it. It, it. It's basically 10 if you use it in a commission of a felony, 20 if you discharge it, 25 to life if you hurt somebody or kill them. So I was charged with aggravated assault, which was um, at that time under the 1020 life. Since then, my law, my case has helped change that that law. That particular charge is no longer in the minimum mandatories for gun laws. So just so that, hi, it's um, Q, just so that we're clear. So this prosecutor decided that you were the criminal, even though you had the restraining order, even though you were threatened, even though you just gave birth, even though your husband had already abused you, even though you already had a permit for a concealed weapon, even though you tried to remove yourself from the place of violence and backed away, and including being in a state that had to stand your ground law, and they didn't allow you to have self-defense. So all of those factors went into the way that they charged you, right? They disregarded right. all of that as part of your defense and instead chose to focus on criminalizing the victim of violence. Right. Crazy. That, that, is, that is horrible. I, 
But this is why we have this show, because we have to speak this truth and let people know. And thank you so much for being part of the face of the movement and for letting people know that we don't have to stand for this, that we can fight back. Absolutely. So, uh, Wandalyn, are you ready to share some stories about your clients? Or you don't have to if you don't want to. No, no, that's that's fine. Nobody's name will be called or anything like that. No, absolutely be, not. Yeah, but but before uh, before I do that, I guess one of the things that makes this um, uh, a pretty important topic to me, other than other than being a, a woman of color, is that as a young child, I, I always looked at my mom and wondered why she was one of the youngest people that I knew who ha- actually had like uh, dentures, and I never asked. Uh, as a kid, and then as I got older, I found out it was because she had been a victim of domestic violence uh, before I was born uh, with her first husband, um, and that was striking to me that it that even um, even women who've been victimized by it really may have a difficult time talking to uh, talking to their daughters about it and trying to figure out how um, you know how to assess whether somebody is really safe and see what the red flags are. Um, but in terms of uh, in terms of my um, in terms of my patients, what I notice is that I, I don't see a lot of people who who allow me to see bruises uh, or or marks on them. But what you see is a a story of uh, intimidation, um, people being put down and being disempowered to the point that they're almost afraid to acknowledge to me alone in the room without the man uh, around uh, what's going on with them. And so I don't use the term violence. Uh, very often I will say something about, um, are you afraid of your partner? Are, is there kicking, slapping, hitting, uh, name-calling? Um, are you restricted in terms of your ability to see your friends and family? Those kinds of things so that people can can acknowledge what's going on but not have a sense of, um, uh, not have a sense of shame or being uh, misunderstood. Because when we say the word violence, People who have been kind of acclimated to it have a difficult time accepting that that's really what's happening uh, in their home. You you brought up an interesting point a while ago, Q, when you talked about the children being exposed to it. I'm also a child psychiatrist, and so for us, uh, it's not just sexual and physical abuse that we're mandated reporters of. We are mandated reporters if a child has been exposed to domestic violence because we understand that it's a risk factor for so much um so much psychopathology uh, besides the fact that the children may be hurt themselves physically. Uh, we know that it's associated with, you know, a failure to uh, uh, adapt developmentally and to be healthy in terms of their moods and behaviors. And so uh, when pe- when we recognize that somebody has been exposed, it's incumbent upon us actually legally. We have, to, uh, we have to report it, and that's how important it is. So very often I have women who will start by saying they're staying in an unhappy marriage or relationship because they want to protect the children. Um, they want to uh, have the children have their father, and we know that uh, you're really not doing yourself the children or the children any favors by staying in a, in a relationship that's dysfunctional. What we're teaching the kids is that, you know, the next generation is that uh, you, you solve your problems by violence and by, uh, by intimidation. Um, and so start, you know, from the child point of view, that's one of the things that's critically important to me, too, in terms of ending the scourge. But we can talk more about, you know, the stories that people go through, but mostly what I see is a lot of uh, a lot of uh, emotional abuse, particularly in women of the, the diaspora or even, you know, even Hispanic women. Uh, the issue is often I can't report, number one, nobody's going to believe me, number two, particularly with the new climate in the country, I may get deported if I report anything that's going on with me um, uh, that involves law enforcement, you know, I can't trust the system, I'm going to end up getting deported. And so part of the struggle is to convince people that your life and your health and your children's life and health come come first. Um, but that's the difficult part. Hey. How do we make it safe? Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. And I just want to take a brief moment to let our listeners know that they could feel free to call in and ask questions of any one of us at... Again, I'd like our listeners to know that they can feel free to give us a call at 619-924-0980. I'm sorry, 0980. Um, But that's great. um, Some of the information that you shared with us was that 
when dealing with people who, when dealing with women who are victims of domestic violence, you don't actually use the word violence, but you actually describe some of the behaviors um, that can be indicative of warning signs. And so for our listeners, I, I, we, we talked a little bit about the intersection of the law and how that victimizes um, the individual when we discuss Marissa's story. But Starting with you, Wanda, and then going with, to you, Marissa, would you share a little bit about the warning signs that you have identified so that our listeners can kind of be on the lookout um, so that we can hopefully create a space where people don't feel intimidated and they may want to reach out to us? Um, and then from that we'll go into strategies. But I'd like a little bit of discussion on the warning signs. Going okay. to you first, Wanda, and then Marissa. Okay. So I, I don't work in a in a hospital or like a – a multi-specialty practice, but for anybody who is in those uh, who is in those environments, the person who is absolutely always at every appointment uh, with the partner, and they come into the waiting room and they uh, into the exam room itself, and and they won't um, and they won't ever leave uh, the partner alone. We consider that like a big uh, warning flag, and so you know a, a big red flag. So. Uh, that's the woman that we need to pull apart to uh, say we need to get a urine sample or something like that. So when we have the woman on the way to the bathroom or at the bathroom, we can ask if you're safe at home because people are literally afraid to, you know, to uh, indicate even in writing or anything like that with the partner around. So if somebody is always accompanied by someone, and particularly somebody who speaks for them, um, then we have to be uh, concerned about it. But what I see in, you know, in psychiatry in terms of, of private practice is very often people have uh, somatic complaints, like bodily complaints, a person who has chronic pelvic pain or stomach pain or a lot of times uh, migraine headaches and, uh, and uh, inability to sleep. Uh, all those things are indicators that there's probably some traumatic exposure going on, things that we need to explore. If you're having uh, recurrent nightmares, all those, kinds of, uh, all those kinds of issues are things to explore. People who talk about um, in a family where there are enough financial resources, having to get permission um, from the husband to 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 make the most minimal of purchases. Like I have one woman whose husband um, uh, makes millions millions of dollars a year, who uh, who had to call his practice in order to get uh, to get the secretary to put money on a card when she went to the grocery store to put money in an account so that uh, because. You know, she would try to get money, try, try to pay for groceries for the kids, and find out that there was nothing in the account. Like, to me, that in, in and of itself is an abusive situation. So, those kinds of people who are, are under too much financial constraint, we have to wonder what else is going on. Is there, and why are you so fearful about everything that needs to be done? Is there some level of uh, violence or intimidation going on in the house? People who have suspicious marks, don't tell me that you are 50 years old and. You were running and you fell, and that's how you explain the, the the mark on your knee. That is very unlikely, and marks on your elbow and random marks that appear on your forehead, that's not likely, right? Um, so we look for overwhelming anxiety, suspicious marks, people who are never unaccompanied, and people who have a lot of uh, issues with um, with financial freedom and freedom in terms of um, uh, social contacts. Great. Thank you so much, Marissa. Would you share a little bit about the nonprofit you started to help our sisters and give a little bit of advice on what we should look out for so that we can help them during these very complicated and perilous times? Um, okay. So, you know, basically the, my nonprofit came out of what I experienced myself, you know. Um, I was a working um, professional. So, let me let me go back to the question, and cause I heard you know Dr. Wanderlin speak. So ultimately, what it came to me to understand was it's essentially a mechanism and a manipulation to control another person, you know, mm-hmm. on its surface. Okay, and so what you know what I experienced was things like um, what looks like, and I compare it to a slow leak in in gas where you can't smell it, but it'll kill you. You know what I mean? That's how it was. It was very subtle. It was very, you know, it 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 came off as charming, but what it was was essentially, a, you know, ways to kind of, to try to restrict my movement and isolate me and control. Okay, before we even got to a point where we were physical, those warning signs early on are very very critical, and I did not see them as they were. Okay, 
So a lot of the things I like to talk about is what it looks like prior to getting to that point because a lot of the time the guy does not have, I'm going to beat you in two weeks or a month or two months written on his forehead when you meet. As a matter of fact, there's some of the most charming people and the people in their community would be like, oh, God, you know, they're, they're the greatest guy or girl or whatever the per- that is, or their father or whatever it is. So for me, it was it, 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 that's what it looked like for me. My nonprofit, you know, deals with those things that we don't really talk about. We talk about leaving, but we don't talk about defending ourselves. We don't talk about recognizing those signs of, listen, you know, if somebody's wanting to call you such and such minutes and find out where you are, and you have to pick up your phone, and then you have to explain to that person why you didn't answer the phone. That's a, that's a, that's a warning sign. You know what I mean? If it, it's not cute, they know they want to be with you everywhere you go. You know, they're not that concerned about you. They don't love you just that much, and don't want to be separated from you. If they get an attitude, if you have other things going on, and you want to be and go do those things without them, that's also the small sign that's going to lead to bigger things, which was that control. So. For me, I like to to get into those because, I, for whatever reason, um, I did not I didn't see it like that initially. I just thought that, you know he had an anger problem, you know. But I now understanding that you know that was the type of relationship that I was that I was in. I did not see it that way. So for my nonprofit, you know, it's awareness and, and raising that, and as part of that also is the, you know criminalizing the victim, which I have an issue with because we shame people into feeling like, well, you know, you ask that question, well, why didn't you stay? Why didn't you leave? Or oh, I just did that. We, you know, what it should have, could have, doesn't matter. This is what the situation is, and people don't need to feel judged. They need support. Um, so that's what I'd like to do. That's what's a part of my nonprofit. Then um, just the things that affected me, you know, minimum mandatories and that feed into mass incarceration, criminal uh, policy reform, and things of that nature as well, the school-to-prison pipeline, um, which is important to me because I've seen so many young girls dealing with abuse or have been in an abusive home being exploited, and thus that trauma causes later on issues in their life. So that's a, a lot of the things that my nonprofit deals with. Marissa, you're speaking my language. I am with you 100%. You too, Wanda. I, you know, I I try not to use um, this word too often, but I can't help it because you you describe the patriarchy, right? You, this whole idea that men think that they have the right to exercise dominion and control over our bodies and our lives. And then they take that concept of dominion and control and they put it on steroids by thinking that they can visit violence against us. And then our children have to be a witness to this. And I'm so glad that we discussed a little bit about how children um, – how how this impacts children, and I just wanted to share this story real quick before we start to talk about strategies. When I was a child, I was a tutor, and I used to go to the homes of young people and help them with math. And there was this one family that I worked with, and I honestly ended up working with all five of the children. And there was violence in that home to the point where my mother, when I came home and told her a story, said I could not go back. The father locked his middle daughter, who at the time was in the eighth grade in the garage, after beating her. And I still remember her voice saying to me, Carrie, can you hear me? It's cold outside. Wow. Right? Carrie, can you hear me? It's cold outside. How bold and brazen was was he to do that? With, with you there. Talk about dominion yeah, and, and control. control. And to this day, the oldest daughter stopped talking until she left. Mm. The second daughter ended up having two abortions before she was in the mm. 10th grade, unbeknownst to her family. The third daughter went away to school. The the second, the, the oldest boy, um, he left, and I don't know what happened to the baby. But I did get to know the family really well, and I think um, I think of them often because I I think that's part of the reason why I do the work that I do is because that young girl said to me, Carrie, can you hear me? It's cold outside. After he beat her, yes, and the brazenness of it all, the absolute brazenness of it all, because he had no fear of me. Mm-hmm. He had no fear of the mother. He had no fear of spending time in jail and coming out. 
So both were warning signs that I could do nothing about then other than to listen and see them and sneak them candy because they wouldn't allow them to buy candy, so I would bring it to them, and they would eat it, and then I would take the wrappers with me so that no one knew they had candy. But at least I gave them some solace, and at least they knew that someone cared. So talking about that, there were no strategies that I could give, but I would like to remind our listeners that they can feel free to call in at 619-924-0980 if they have any questions. And otherwise, I'd like to turn to Wanda to start talking about some strategies to help. Um, and then we'll follow up with Marissa, and then I believe Ange has something to say. Yeah, before um, we go to, to uh, Wanda Lynn, I have a question. Um, could you talk a little bit, Wanda Lynn, if you've had any clients that are same-sex or that you find that it's a female abusing um, a, a man? Uh, and I only ask that. I know that the topic is primarily, you know, women being criminalized, but I'm curious as to um, situations when, when, you know, Q talks about the situation that she was in with those with those young kids and, and the abuse that they experienced and how that manifests into how they interact then with their loved ones in their lives. I'm just curious as to how you have seen that manifest in your practice. Well, we know that um, uh, one in four women are, are abused, but it's, it's about one in seven men. Um, and uh, it's hard to come by the correct statistics, but, but probably a predominance of it in, um, when it comes to the men in same-sex uh, same relationships as well. Um, but honestly, like the men who come in, it's usually it's somebody that I would have had to have a treatment relationship with for, for a couple of years typically before they would ever even disclose it because Marissa mentioned how as a woman society kind of shames you for not leaving or, or how did you tolerate this, da-da-da-da-da, but for a man it's even worse. Um, so to even ex- uh, to disclose that to a single uh, treatment professional can be very very uh, embarrassing. But um, in terms of the men who have uh, the men who have ultimately disclosed it, it's the ones that I can recall at this point anyway. It's always uh, it's always uh, that they're victims of of men. That's not to say that that the women are not often the perpetrators. Perpetrators, but I guess maybe the ones that have been most damaged are the ones who who were uh, victimized uh, physically or sexually by other men, and so you know their kind of pain is to the extent that they come in, um, you know, they come in for treatment. So those are the ones that that I actually see. Um, it would take a man a really long time, I think, to disclose about a woman having uh, having been the one who is the aggressor or they are more likely to try and excuse it. It's because she had this substance abuse problem or because she had um, a bipolar disorder. And so it takes some educating and, uh, and, and some supporting to recognize that regardless of what is wrong with the person, uh, it's, it's not okay to do this in any case, right? And so I've actually stood up in church situations at times and said to people that, um, all due respect, you know, I'm not trying to tell people to break up their marriages, but if somebody's not safe, the priority is the priority is safety. Um, and so very often people who are really good people, but because they see themselves as, as Christian or whatever religion, mm-hmm. it's not okay to leave. I'm supposed to stay even if my life is mm-hmm. in danger. And, and that's one of the things that I find like I really have to speak up against, you know. For the record, I'm a Christian as well, but I don't think that God intends for you to have anybody beat the pulp out of you. So at least um, separate from the person until, you know, they can get help and there is a reasonable expectation of safety before you decide to live under the same roof because so often women are actually killed. If To me, if someone can raise your hand to, their hand to you, then they can actually kill you. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to look at it that as something that's potentially terminal, not just a little bad behavior or an anger management okay. problem, potentially lethal. Well, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. I actually, um, before we turn to Marissa, I do have one story, and it is of a roommate that I had in college, and it was, you know, one of those late-night sessions where you probably share more than you ever would when you're older. But she explained that she grew up watching her mother beat her father. 
and how difficult it was for her to deal with that because her father let it go because her mother was so much smaller than he was. But she's like domestic violence isn't just about women being hit by men, but it also happens in the reverse. And so I understood in many ways it was a very complicated dynamic, not just because of the gender roles, but also because of the immigrant status, because she was from the Caribbean, so there's a kind of hyper-masculinity that pervades a lot of our community also. So wrestling with all of that, I think, might have been part of the reason why, even though she started school with me, she was not able to finish school with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to share that one story about uh, male uh, women visiting violence against men. Mm-hmm. Um, but Marissa, you talked a little bit more. You talked a little bit earlier about your program and how your organization is really working to help people be empowered and to think about different ways and avenues to kind of extricate themselves from the situation. So would you like to share a little bit more about that? I mean, yeah, sure. You know, I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, educating people on um, what is not a functioning uh, relationship and what is a functional relationship or, you know, and so speaking back to the male, I, you know, when I was at Atlanta, I had a, a couple who had a son who came to an event that they were hosting for me and they explained to me that their their son was actually in the abusive relationship where the female was the um, the the abuser and, and that he felt trapped because he had kids with her and so, you know, there, there, there was that, that push-pull. So, you know, when we talk about, you know, domestic violence, we're talking about, you know, domestic, meaning domestic of the home. It could be, you know, a family member and an intimate partner isn't just, you know, men on uh, on women. It's your intimate partner. So it could be, mm-hmm. you know, um, relationships with the same sex um, or, you know, whatever that intimate, the intimate relationship is. But um, back to, you know, as far as what my knowledge, I mean, my thing is to be, like, candid and, like, let's not stop, you know, like, have this conversation where, you know, we, our experiences, and I'm going to speak specifically for, uh, um, you know, women of color, are different in terms of how we are treated when we do get law enforcement involved. And a lot of the times that prevents. Um, a lot of report, a lot of, of abuse goes unreported, um, and I have an issue with that because um, if you can't call, you know, those that protect and serve, and and get the same treatment as um, the women that are not of color, our other counterparts, then that that you know the services and the programs are even different, if if that makes any sense. So you know, no, one of my issues. You know, one of my issues that I have is, you know, I really have a problem with the narrative that, you know, you know, you know, they deserve it. Look how, you know, they act or they are more aggressive. And I literally had an officer say that to me while I was in jail. You know, I guess he went to some class or something, and maybe he got it out of a book with pictures and pop-ups. Who knows? I don't care. But, you know, I was, you know, and he said this to me, and, you know, and here I am sitting here like, well, you know, I told him it was really ignorant of him, first of all, and I told him to turn the picture to, like, you know, one of the shows, and you can see people are angry all over it. It doesn't matter what color, and people are just, you know, people are violent, and there's a lot going on. So it's just not women of color, number one. Um, and so that I have an issue with. And so because of that, I feel like whenever there is abuse or we are are victims, it's really, you know, dismissed, you know, discounted, and we're not taken serious, as in case with myself and other victims, of women of color that are victims, which is an issue that I'm going to really talk about, which is a touchy mm-hmm. subject for people, but the truth is actually the truth. And because of it, you know, there's there's somewhat of a split in our community in this domestic violence work because you know, um, we don't necessarily have the same experiences when we do get law enforcement involved, and and because we don't, um, that 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 ends in death in a lot of cases. And, and it happened in Florida with a young lady who did, in fact, get the police involved, called them, and they told her to stop calling. And right when she went home to get her family to leave, that man killed them at the bus stop because she was trying to leave, she didn't have a car, and she she killed him and her own child and shot up a couple of other people. You understand what I'm saying? That I have Absolutely. Her life, did, her life didn't, it was not valued. 
nobody said to her, let me go and check this guy's car who was already a felon who had a gun in the car, and that could have been prevented. But no, what she was told was stop calling the police. And that happens all too often, and people want to act like, you know, well, you know, and don't want to talk about it. We got to talk about this thing, and we're going to actually work through it. So those are the things that I like to talk about and then educate young girls on, you know, how to be treated and what to expect. And that's very difficult when the environment they come from and that social norm is an environment for which they see that. It's hard to help them see what a healthy relationship looks like. You know what I mean? But, you, but we, we still have those conversations with them and also allowing them to be unadulterated themselves and meet them where they are so that they don't feel like they have to hold back and so they can open up so that we can talk and, you know, get them the help that they that they need. Right, Thank right. you so much. I'm going to turn yeah. to Trina, and then um, and then I'll go back to you, Wanderlyn, and then I have something to say. Go ahead, Trina. Yeah, I just wanted to just take a moment and say thank you to both of you for what you're doing, Dr. Peters, for what you are doing, for how you are standing and not only treating the patients, but also really standing for the the complexity of this entire environment and speaking out in churches and things like that and actually calling forth some of the things that are happening. Uh, I think that's very powerful. And Marissa, I'm kind of sitting here getting chills listening to you talk because what you have been through, you actually took that pain and now you are empowering others. And that that's why we're here tonight is really to be able to tell our stories and to, to be able to take some of these stereotypes. We've talked about, you know, the emasculation of women and and um all of these things and, you know, the the stereotype of angry black women and, and all of these various things and you are actually speaking truth to power and I'm about to I, I zoomed in on your picture of your um of your um, tattoo, and I'm about to tweet it because I just love that story. But thank you for your stand. I can't imagine what it was like for you to go through what you w- went through, and I just wa- wanted to make sure that we paused and acknowledge you both for the way that you contributed. Thank you so thank much, you. Wanda. It sounded like oh yes. You're welcome. It's and our, again, it's our... and I, again, I everyone. Just... Go ahead, Wanda. No, I just wanted to talk about, um, I, you know, Marissa's story brought to mind that the whole issue of, of how people, you know, that we need to we need to plan about the person who got killed uh, at the bus stop or going to the bus stop, and and that's one of the things that I think you know we don't we don't get enough information about. First of all, I guess the young girls need to have information, as you said, Marissa, about what's an acceptable or normal healthy relationship and what's not and learning to value yourself to know that you are more important than just, you know, an instrument of pleasure for this particular person. If that person, you know, is not really able to appreciate you completely, then uh, they need to be empowered enough to understand at the deepest levels that that's really their loss and move on rather than trying to work harder and harder to subjugate themselves to somebody who doesn't really mean them good. So that's the first thing is to make sure that, you know, we talk to our girls in a way that, that empowers them, teaches them to to love themselves and to re- respect themselves, because if, if they can do that, that would help them to not be victims so much, because what I see is that the age is going down and down. It's not like just married women. It's like girls who are 15 and 16 allowing themselves to be abused by boys, and it's like, hello, like you have no obligation to this person. So that's the the, the first thing. But then the other thing is to talk about once you are in the established long-term adult relationship, like how do we plan to, to leave? Like like can people make sure that they, they get copies of financial records and travel documents and stashes of uh, money somewhere and one or two people that you can really trust, like in your family, not the guy's family, um, to come and pick you up and to, to hide you and say where you are, et cetera. I mean, not say not say where you are, um, so that they can leave in the safest way, um, uh, in the safest way possible. Because that is the time of utmost danger is is when the person does make the decision and takes the the, the you know the opportunity to leave. Like, where is the money? Where is the clothing? Where are the documents? And and where are you going to stay? This stuff mm. needs to be done like well in advance as much as possible, little by little, so that they can't find it, um, and so that you have the best chance of of safety because. That story proves, and your story proves as well, that having a restraining order um, 
doesn't really do anything. People are not really like, you know, that put off by the idea of having a restraining order. It's good in theory, but it doesn't actually protect you. So you need to be able to have a way of uh, of escaping safely since we can't really depend on on the system to protect as much as we could, you know. I I remember now certain things we block out, right? But but I remember now being a kid in college and and uh, I had a friend who lived off campus with somebody she had a baby for and he and she ran from him. She had a black eye. That's the only time in my life actually, even though I've been a physician for all these years, that's the only time in my life I've literally seen somebody with a black eye. Because uh, the guy hit her, and she came to my dorm room and hid, and he came to the door to look for her. And I lied. I'm like, of course, she's not here. I haven't seen her in ages. <laughs> and I think about it now, like, that is, like, of scary stuff. He could have just pushed himself into the door. It was the, the era before cell phones. There was nothing I really could have done. But I, I stood there, and I looked seriously and lied. And, and, and so he went away. And at some point, like a few days later, he came to her job with a gun and thankfully didn't hurt her. But um, but it's a dangerous time, and and people like like I said, if they can hit you, then they can actually destroy you. And so people need to make plans long term in terms of how to leave and and understand where to get help. So before we ever end the call, one of the things that I wanted to make sure that uh, that people have is the number for the National Domestic Violence Hotline, um, and they will put you in touch with uh, with an advocate pretty immediately. I call to make sure first, but. It's 1-800-799-SAFE, so it's 1-800-799-7233, and that's a number that can be memorized, 800-799-SAFE, S-A-F-E, because you can't write things down, because if people get wind of the idea that people want to leave, it's not safe. So I'd encourage people to to remember it and call if they need more help with figuring out how to leave and and where the safe shelters are that... uh, that they can go because they exist. You won't find them in the phone book because we can't put them in the phone book. If we do, then the perpetrators will find them as well. But if you call the numbers in your individual states or the National Domestic Violence Hotline, you can find out where the shelters are so you can have a safe place to go with you and your kids. Thank you so much for sharing that, Wanda, and I'll repeat that number again, 1-800-799-SAFE. I want you all to think about that, remember it, and hold it close. Thank you so much for reminding everyone that very rare do we, um, especially as we get older, do we make decisions that will impact our lives without having a plan in place. The kind of spontaneity that you have as a child, you know, you grow out of it as a natural part of growth. And so Similarly, when you're in this situation, you you should definitely look at avenues and ways to have a plan so that way when you extricate yourself, you can do so as safely as possible. I'd like to circle back a little bit to some of what Marissa talked about because I led this discussion talking about the fact that we live in a hostile world, right? Like the world right now is hostile, and we need to be very, very cognizant of the fact that as women of color, the hostility is amped up, right? We've been rejected before we even showed up, and they have named us before we even had a chance to grow. And Trina talked about the tropes, and so did you, Marissa. They talk about the fact that, no, you stop calling because you're just an angry black woman, so we're just going to call you Sapphire and let it be done, right? We're just going to pick up that trope. Or you're going to say that you were, you know, you were hypersexual and then you turned him off and you shouldn't have done that or you should have just given it to him and you were a Jezebel, right? Or, you know, why didn't you cook dinner and take care of the family? If you did what you were supposed to do, then this wouldn't have happened and they turned you into a mammy. They turn us into caricatures as a way to dehumanize us and render us invisible so that they don't actually have to acknowledge us and see our pain and help us, right, because we're not human. We're just an instrument that men feel that they can exercise dominion and control and use at will. Um, But it doesn't have to be that way anymore, right? Like we can slowly and steadily be there for each other so that we can smash the patriarchy that says that they think they can exercise dominion and control over our bodies, and that's why I... I so love the movement Say Her Name for those women who um, were killed and the police either facilitated their death by executing them, they criminalized them by saying that manifestations of mental health conditions was the reason why they had to attack them, or they, you know, they just don't care because they consider us not to be a priority. So keeping in mind with all of that, 
I would like you all to share some final words with our listeners about what do you want them to walk away with? What do you want them to know, Um, especially to anyone listening who might have found an opportunity to listen, but they can't actually or they're not ready to talk yet, but at least they know that there's something out there. So share some words with those who either need the help or want to help or they just need to hear it. I'll go to you first, Marissa. Okay, thank you. Um, You know, I think that, you know, it's important um, that collectively, you know, um, you know, as women we understand just how powerful we are as women, especially if we are collectively working together. And I think that's the reason why there's such a, um, uh, you know, the the spin to make, you know, put us against each other. I see that a lot in, you know, media and different things. I, I don't watch TV um, but I've, I've, I've noticed that, and I, I find that to be very interesting because, you know, I know what we're capable of doing together, um, so just putting that out there. But, you know, it's really uh, important to me um, that, you know, people are really understanding. I mean, I, 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 have, a, I have such a different view on things because, you know, to, to, to go through the system, you know, and to actually live in the environment and be of the mindset where I can absorb and, you know, I'm fortunately grateful enough to, to, to have the capacity to learn and, and, and really to do research. I, I, everything makes complete sense to me. And what we have to understand is is that, you know, people aren't born bad. They're born into bad conditions. So what we have is a lot of hurt people who have trauma, that have, have, have had some type of trauma that haven't been healed. You you understand what I'm saying, and and so they go on, pretty much unhealed, and they create these environments and have families, and the family structure is just pretty much the, the repeating cycle of these type of things. And unfortunately, you know, we don't feel like you know it, it's easier to say, well, you know, if they are making bad choices, they should have known better by a certain point. But what I have found because I lived amongst it is that a lot of their social environments and their social norm. This is to them, that's normal. You know what I mean. So if you don't get exposed, if you don't take the time, in other words, be patient and take the time to sit down and see and understand. Okay, now I see why you think the way you think. I'm not really concerned about what you did. I'm concerned about why you did what you did to kind of understand. Oh, okay, and then help. You know, maybe help that person and um, be exposed to something different. Be exposed to an, an, another alternative. Oh, I, I never, you know, thought about it that way. Oh, I have this as an option, but it takes people that care in, in taking that time to to do that and to have those conversations. And when doing so, doing it in an environment where the person doesn't feel judged, and, and that's huge in in dealing with just some of the things that I, I have I have experienced. I have people reach out to me all the time, and it's very very important to me that if we want to help people to be able to, like she said, an exit an exit strategy. And, and by the way, I sit in some domestic violence uh, restraining order hearing, and um, that that's, that's a whole other topic. But, because, but nonetheless, I, I do go out into the field and I actually look at this stuff because I want to compare and see, make sure I'm, you know, getting the full angle of everything. But it's very important that we understand that, you know, some of the times these people just, this is all they know and this is where they come from. And so until we educate and expose them to something different and then perhaps create an environment, the programs and services that will allow them, you know, to make the choice because, you know, you can inspire people, but you can't motivate them. They want to do it, they're going to do it. But at least expose them to the opportunity to say, you know, that there's an option, there's a better way you can leave. And in and in the case where you do leave and you're successfully leaving, that person, kind of, you know, is after you then, I mean, you should have the right to defend yourself. I mean, I'm not going to back down from that. You know, I'm not a, 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 you know, I don't advocate violence, but at the same time, self-preservation, you know, I mean, self-defense is an act of self, is an act of self-preservation. You know what I mean? You do what you have to do. So, um, you know, that's important to me. So that's just something I just kind of need to, to mention and bring up. No, that's wonderful. And before I turn to Wanda, I just wanted to mention with victim blaming, we have to remember that victim blaming is a tool of the oppressor against the oppressed. Remember Mm -hmm. that. So when people shame you because of an experience that was externalized or internalized, all they're trying to do is maintain the same system of oppression. 
so that they can assert their privilege and keep you in a place where you are small so they feel large and we're going to we're going to let go of those shackles and it's not going to happen anymore. We're going to create a space where women can step forward. Um Wanda, do you have any additional words for us? I guess my the only thing that we didn't cover, which is interesting since I am a psychiatrist, is 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 uh is about mental illness and its its role in in and keeping people in the place that they are as well. And, you know, because very often, most of the time, uh, when I find out about somebody having been uh, abused, it's because they come in with uh, symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, like a kind of being a, in a place of numbness or dissociating, meaning like blanking out from time to time because the pain of their real lives or abuses is, is a bit overwhelming or just uh, overwhelming anxiety, panic disorder, that sort of thing. And so I guess my encouragement is if you recognize that, that you need to 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 leave a relationship, even if it hasn't actually degenerated to the point of becoming physical, um, but you're not doing it because of uh, of fear or anxiety or just being beaten down and depressed. Then at least go and try and get yourself treatment for uh, for whatever that condition is, the depression or whatever it is, so that you can you know reclaim your own power. Because when people are no longer depressed, they can start to think more clearly about what are the steps that I need to take and have the courage and the actual energy required to do all of the planning and, and get safely uh, out of the situation. Too often I've seen that people have really you know, suffered for a long time uh, with, with an emotional illness that they never got treatment for. And so uh, that's why they were stuck as well. So my tagline is uh, mental illnesses are treatable and that there is hope. When you have your full faculties in mental health, then you stand a much better chance of escaping any situation uh, that is abusive. So I'd encourage people to, to get help because it is available. Just reach out and, and get help from, from professionals, even if you, the only person you know is your primary care physician or the only person you trust, find a way to say that you um, need to be alone with the doctor for a minute um, or you need to go give a urine sample so that you can have a minute to talk to the doctor or the nurse and, and get with the information that you need and get help to get out safely or to get mental health treatment. That's it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yes, absolutely. Find an opportunity to talk with your physician or your nurse in private if that may be the only avenue. Before I turn it over to Ange to kind of close us out a little bit and let us know about the next topic for next month, I'd first like to I'd first like to thank Marissa and Wanda and thank you so much for leading a very rich and informative discussion, which I hope leads everyone both angry and empowered to act. Um, I believe anger is a very important and useful emotion, and you all stirred my anger to act. And with that, I would like to leave you with some words by June Jordan, because we are nothing if not intersectional feminists, right? So I say that, and I leave you with these words. Women of color warriors are constant warriors who dig in bare earth to feed the hungry child, who pray for health besides the bedside of the sick when there is no medicine, who fashion a toy to make a poor child smile, who take to the streets demanding freedom, freedom, freedom against armed police. Every act of survival by a woman of color is an act of resistance to Holocaust and war. No soldier fights harder than a woman warrior, for she fights for total change, for a new world order in which she can finally rest in love. On that note, cue the lovable, huggable, angry black woman who's here to tell you that the revolution may not be televised, but it definitely will be live streamed. Thanks you all for listening to us, and I turn it over to Ange for final words. Thank you very much. It was an excellent, excellent discussion. Marissa and Wandalyn and Q, thank you very, very much for a wonderful show. I want to just restate the number that Wandalyn gave, 1-800-799-SAFE, 1-800-799-7233. Uh, I am going to commit this to memory if, in fact, I'm never in that situation, but if I come across someone who is in that situation. And our next show, I want to let people know, is Thursday, June 15th at 7 p.m., and the show will be Women and Our Finances, How Green Is Your Purse? 
And our show in July will be on mental health, black and brown women. So thank you all for joining us tonight. We really, really do appreciate it. It was an excellent discussion, and I know we're all moved to some sort of action. So thank you again, and have a wonderful night. Good night, ladies. Good night. Good night.